Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations. With audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening fiction about terrified towns and possessing paintings. Also, both of tonight's tales are Chilling Tales exclusives, meaning you won't have heard them anywhere else. I'm your host, Jason Hill, host of the Horror Hill Podcast, standing in for our friend Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Josh Morelli and Trevor Brindley are voice talents Jonathan West and Eric Peabody. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Josh Morelli and is performed by Chilling Tales for Dark Nights voice talent Jonathan West. In it, we will travel to a world bordered by a fog that no one can traverse and witness the cruel consequences that happen when someone finally does. Without further ado, I present to you Beyond the Pale. My grandfather would tell me stories when I was young about the time before, when the world was large and the mist had yet to come. He would tell me about animals that were larger than humans and buildings that stretched into the sky. There were so many people in his stories that you could travel your whole life without ever seeing the same face twice. I loved his stories, and I would always be sad when they ended. Because our world is nothing like the one my grandfather spoke of. Our world is small, and you will see every face here, many, many times. I remember that my grandfather argued with people a lot. If someone thanked the keepers for protecting us, he would invariably get annoyed. When the council started to say, we are the last of our kind, I recall that he even got in trouble for trying to debate them. But Granddad had always found an issue with what the council preached. When I was young, he and my father would get into fights pretty often. 
and he would shout at my dad to open his eyes. Granddad had an unhealthy dislike for the council. He called them a cult of the mist and said they weren't created to enforce their own laws and religious doctrine. When he'd rant about their worship of the mist, he would tell me never to forget one thing. You build a fence to keep your livestock safe from things trying to get in, but you also build it to stop them from getting out. I love my grandfather, and I remember every lesson he taught me. I don't know why the mist exists, but what I do know is that they've been there since I was born, and they will be here long after I have died. They enshroud the boundaries of our world, and for a good reason, it is forbidden to traverse them. I made the mistake once of breaking that taboo when I was young. A vague memory of stepping over the threshold is all I recall, and then nothing but darkness. I've been told I was found in the early hours of the morning quietly sitting on the ground, staring at the fog. Ever since that night, sleep rarely comes easy to me, and when it does come, I have terrible dreams. Visions of beautiful things devoured, of a writhing black mass born of rotting flesh. Nightmares always end with the image of a world consumed by a towering maw of endless teeth. For 13 years, I've awoken almost every night in a cold sweat. I lay there breathing hard and terrified that one day I might have to venture back there, into the mist. This past month my suffering has grown unbearable as I await the day I turn 18. Because this place has a tradition, one that has been kept for as long as anyone can remember. Each year we host a festival where every able-bodied person over the age of 18 must enter their name into a special box. At the end of the day, one of the councilmen will choose randomly from it and then announce the name of the year's festival winner. That person will then get the privilege of becoming the season's Mistwalker. The next day there's a parade with the Chosen at the front. They will be dressed in the ceremonial garb and wearing the Mistwalker's blindfold. Thousands of us are led to a spot where our land borders the fog. Once there, a speech will be given about the origins of the festival. Then the winner is told what they must do after crossing over. Finally, a council member will speak on the keepers and whisper words meant only for the ears of the chosen. A shiver ran down my spine when the date was announced this year because it was decided the festival would take place the day after my birthday. When my father came home on the day of the announcement and whispered to my mother in our kitchen, she started quietly sobbing. He held her close and kissed her on the forehead. They stayed that way for some time before telling me, but they hadn't needed to. I knew why she cried. This year, I would be eligible for the box. On the day in question, it was as if all eyes were suddenly fixed upon me. Ever since the day I returned from the mist, most of my neighbors saw me as an anomaly. I had no friends, and those forced to deal with me would only do so out of necessity. As I wrote the words, Sebastian Verose, on the tiny piece of paper and placed it in the box, it was as if the outcome was already decided. When the end of the day came and it was announced that I would be the year's chosen, a silent sigh of relief was felt throughout the crowd. As my name was broadcast loud over the throngs of people, I felt all the years between that night from my childhood and now just disappear. The fear was revitalized, fresh as the day it happened, and my stomach remained firmly lodged within my throat for the rest of the festivities. I could see one of the councilmen stepping down from the stage to congratulate me, but I turned and ran through the crowd of staring faces, desperate to get home. The sounds of people calling to me echo in my head as I tear through the fields and the back roads. When I finally see my house in sight, 
I cannot even reach the front door before retching. Ten years worth of horrible, fragmented dreams, visions of cruel terrors, and teeth come pouring out of me as I fall to the ground. My parents follow me home and arrive shortly after I get there. They find me pale and shaking and rush to embrace me. After a few moments, my father speaks. They cannot force you, son. To hell with tradition. Everyone knows what happened. They couldn't blame you for refusing. Next, my mother's soft voice rises to challenge him. Of course they know. That's exactly why they've chosen him. No one here cares. What matters is that he scares them, and they want him gone. My father releases me and steps a few feet back, beginning to pace. Fine, we'll hide him then. In the cellar, we'll say he's run off. My mother kisses me before turning to face him. Don't be stupid, David. Whatever we do, one way or another, they'll find him. My father stops pacing, delirious desperation in his voice. Fine, then I'll go in his place. All I want is a body, so I'll give him one. At this, my father opens the front door and I catch a fleeting look of determination on his face before he storms out. My mother chases after him, shouting from the doorway, David, wait! But it's no use. His mind's made up and he quickly disappears down the street. She slowly closes the door, a look of exhaustion in her eyes. I can see the indecision as if it were written on her face, but she doesn't hesitate when walking back to hug me. Don't worry, Sebastian. We'll figure something out. It's going to be okay. I try and take heart from the sentiment, but it is obvious she is finding it hard to believe. The rest of the evening passes quietly, though sleep consistently evades me. Even deep into the night, my father has still not returned. My mother's footsteps keep me company as she paces the hallways for hours. It is only when the early light of dawn begins to show that I forfeit any attempts at sleep. I get dressed and proceed to the kitchen. My mother now sits at the table with a half-empty cup of coffee. She smiles as I enter and starts to greet me, but before she can utter a word, we are interrupted by noise out front. A knock sounds at the door and before I can answer it, my mother is on her feet. She presses her finger to her lips and motions for me to step inside the closet beneath the stairs. I do as she asks, quietly latch the door, and listen. I hear her as she opens the front door and begins to greet whoever is there, but her words are cut short, interrupted by a familiar voice. Charlie Ipswich, one of the town councilmen, is a tall, angular man with a receding hairline and a sharp jaw. Since the day I was found by the fog looking too much like my grandfather, Charlie has hated me. His voice is loud, obviously meant to be heard by more than just my mother. I believe this is yours. The words come as something is painfully thrown to the ground, followed by a grunt and my mother's shriek. She cries, David, as I hear my father coughing and spluttering on the floor. Then the cold voice of the councilman speaks again. What kind of insanity brings one to try and bribe a councilman? To argue with the process is tantamount to blasphemy. It's designed to be fair and unbiased, and it's above any negotiating from stubborn fools who refuse to accept honest results. My dad's voice comes roaring back in protest. Unbiased my ass. You goddamn cockroaches railroaded him the second it was possible. You've hated him for years, you son of a bitch. At this, I hear a loud thump, followed by another grunt from my father and my mother yelling, Stop it! This is followed by the irritated voice of Charlie, again, shouting above my parents. 
Your son has been a nuisance since the day he broke the rules, which, I remind you, were planted with good reason by our forefathers. I have been kind in my treatment of him, but I am also not alone in noticing the fear he incites in people. He is turning out to be very much the spitting image of his grandfather. Now, tell him to come out so we can be done with this nonsense. He is going to meet the keepers, for goodness sake. That is a thing to be excited for. There is silence after this, followed by a sigh before he speaks again. Ah, oh, all right, you've done this to yourselves, making everything so difficult. I hear a struggle, and then a whimper escapes my mother's lips before she starts to sob. Next comes the annoyed voice of the councilman. Sebastian, you have a decision to make now. You can either come with us, and I'll release your father, or you can continue to hide and make this process a little more painful. I hear my father breathing hard as the scraping sound of metal glides against his throat. My mother's screams become deafening as she repeatedly shouts for Charlie to release him, but I hardly hear her now as I listen to the councilman's words. I know what I must do. I inhale a deep breath before slowly pushing open the door and walking towards them with my hands raised. I can now see that behind Charlie stand several other men, their faces all jeering and full of sickening looks. They grab me as Charlie releases my father, kicking him to the ground. I remain silent as they aggressively drag me back with them, though I hear the councilman make one last pronouncement as we leave. Thank you for your hospitality, and don't worry about Sebastian. You will see him again soon. Before I'm shoved into an enormous box, the last thing I see is my mother tending to my injured father. They both turn to look at me with tears in their eyes as the lid shuts. We travel for some time, long enough for my eyes to have adjusted to the darkness inside the box. At some point, we stop, and after a few minutes, the lid is removed, and the dying light of dusk blinds me. Once the sharpness has dulled a bit, I can see we have arrived at a large compound. They lead me to the back and shuffle me inside. Once the door is closed, I am locked in a cell and shackled to the wall. My clothing is soon stripped from me, and I am forced into a solid white ceremonial gown. Not long after, Charlie returns with some of the other councilmen in tow. I recognize them as they get closer. Adrian Powell, Boris Yugosiv, and Michael Torrentov. Each of them in their mid-sixties, at least. They've all been councilmen for decades. Charlie is the newest of their ilk and also the youngest. They greet me, standing behind bars to my cell, and Adrian is the first to speak. Hello, son. I apologize for this. It is common practice for the Chosen to be treated lavishly the night before their journey, but Charlie has made a rather compelling case for the likelihood of your attempted escape. Therefore, we felt this was necessary. Councilman Yugosiv is next speaking slower as he seems to question my captivity. The cell, I understand, but are the shackles truly needed? He is, after all, our guest until the ceremony, yes. Charlie wastes no time skillfully directing the conversation. I appreciate your concerns, Boris, but Sebastian has already proven himself to be difficult, and I do not doubt that he would take any opportunity presented to flee. In all honesty, these precautions are entirely his own doing. I would have liked nothing more than to see him entertained and hosted with a fine feast. Unfortunately, it seems our young friend cannot shake the role of a troublemaker. 
Mr. Torontov is the last to speak, and what he says has an air of finality about it that tells me they have made up their minds. All right, you make a good point, Ipswich. At the very least, make sure the boy is well fed. He should be ready to be received by the priest tomorrow. They continue talking, and I hear Charlie reaffirming and assuring them that they've made the correct choice. Slowly, the voices weaken and disappear down the hall, and I am left to my thoughts in the silence of the night. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. During the first few quiet moments I have had this day, I look through the tiny window in my cell. There is little to see, but I notice that this place appears to be on the far outskirts of town and partially borders the mist. As I move from the window to sit back down, the day's events begin to take their toll. My mind drifts, flowing from one thought to the next, like ripples on the water, pulling me deeper and deeper, until finally the battle with sleep is lost and I helplessly drift away. Though pleasant at first, as they always are, my dreams quickly succumb to a dreadful shift in tone. As I tumble through scenes from my life, I inevitably end up trapped inside the purgatory of that hellish fog, always stumbling and falling as I blindly seek a way out. Time is askew in dreams, and what feels an eternity in my mind is hardly so. But this night, I feel every minute of my sleep, each second an endless burden lost within my nightmares. When suddenly, the fog starts to clear and an ancient memory crawls its way out as I see my exit. I can feel the images resurfacing as I near it, and with them comes the fear. Fear unlike anything I have ever experienced. My hand is outstretched as I near the end, desperate to breach the fog's threshold. I am so close when I suddenly stumble, my feet tangled. I see myself colliding with the ground as I feel something grip my foot. I look back at my attacker and see a fleshy mass with millions of tiny teeth latched onto my leg. A scream rises in my throat as the discolored thing crawls its way up my body and latches onto my face. I jolt up from sleep, shaking and inconsolable. I have had night terrors for a long time, but they have never been so vivid before usually just flashing images and feelings, but this time it felt like I was there. This time, it felt like I almost caught a glimpse of what it is that I've forgotten. Terrified of falling back asleep, I instead choose to wait out the clock until morning. I bide my time counting the bricks in my cell, trying to imagine what this place is used for when it isn't housing me. I have lived here my entire life. Everyone has. There is nowhere else to go. Our existence spans about 6,500 acres, or roughly 10 miles. 
I'd say 20,000 people or so, give or take, live on this land. Here we are born, and here we die together. Still, there is always a past, a history of things that led to where we are. However, like shadows exist behind the light, a community like ours is built atop its secrets. All I know is what family told me, and what they, in turn, were told by theirs. The world was not always so. There was something before the mist came. As I sit shivering on the cold stone floor of my cell, memories of my grandfather begin flooding into my mind. Sitting atop his knee, his alabaster beard so long I can recall it tickling my nose, these were the times when he would speak to me of the world that came before, describing visions of a wondrous and vibrant place that would see me lost in my imagination. When he was a child, he told me how he had books that spoke of these things. He had loved them more than anything and had nearly worn the pages out of many of them. When I asked him what had happened to them, his face would become grave. I remember him telling me that they had all been burned, a decision made by every adult in the community, including his own parents. They would never honestly explain their actions that day to him, and this was something I don't believe he ever truly forgave them for. Some nights when I was older, and he was in a certain kind of mood, he would speak his mind on what he thought their reasons might have been. One particular night stands out, especially now, because of what he had said. Sometimes people who live in ignorance are scared by the truth, Sebastian. But don't you forget, if you live in that ignorance long enough, it's the only truth you know. The only reason I wanted to explore the mist that day was because of my grandfather's stories. His rebellious nature was infectious to me, and after he died, I remember thinking that maybe he had just crossed over, and if I looked there, I could find him. It wasn't until much later that I would learn he had actually disappeared one night. My father told me the last thing he had said to him was that he couldn't live in ignorance any longer. No one ever found his body, but it was long suspected he had gone into the mist. It was a long time coming before the morning light begins to shine through the tiny window in my cell. It's soon followed by a chorus of doves and thrushes tolling the coming dawn. When the darkness is retreated completely and the sun's warmth has begun to seep into my cage, I hear footsteps approaching from down the hall. An unfamiliar face brings me a hot bowl of something to eat and a glass of water. He tells me to eat quickly because the ceremony will begin soon. After breakfast, they come for me. I am led through the winding corridors of this place until we reach a door that brings us outside. Once we pass through, I am greeted by the faces of the councilmen again, with Charlie Ipswich stepping forth to meet me. Good morning. I hope our accommodations were acceptable. It is most important for you to be well rested for today's event. A vile look slithers across his face as he says the words. He steps aside as I am led past the rest of the councilmen following in tow. We do not have to travel far, and it is not long before I see the crowd that has begun to gather at the threshold. Thousands of people have come, possibly everyone who lives here, all waiting to see me forced into that dreadful gray. They part like the Red Sea as I pass, all staring with terrified eyes. I feel a rising sense of hatred for them, but also pity. They are like sheep fed on generations of ignorance, they see me as a threat to their beliefs, and they have all come to see that threat eliminated. I wonder, 
If they knew they were sending me to my death, would it even matter? As I near the end, and the fog becomes a reality closing in, all I can think of is the visions from my dreams and a distant memory of a child in an endless gray world. Finally, I reach the border, where wispy strands of white reach out to grab me. I'm only vaguely aware as one of the councilmen begins reciting something behind me. I have become transfixed by the fog. I can almost hear it, as if those small strands of white were singing to me. Suddenly, the spell is broken, as I am jolted back into the present by the sound of my father's voice. He is pushing through the crowds as he calls out, interrupting the councilman's speech. I can see him frantically shoving and forcing his way to the front. When he finally breaks through and is close enough to be heard, he points at Charlie. This is all bullshit and you know it. You just want to be rid of my son. At this, the councilmen all look flustered and confused, except for Charlie. His face contorts into a look of contempt as he speaks. Your son is an insult to everyone who lives here, a troublemaker just like his grandfather. He is exactly where he is supposed to be. My father turns to the councilman, reaches into his coat pocket, and removes a handful of something. He throws them on the ground at their feet, hundreds of tiny folded pieces of paper with my name on them. Do you know where I found those? In a box poorly hidden in the office of Councilman Ipswich. When I was there last night, I spotted them pleading with them to let me take my son's place today. I don't think much imagination is needed to know what they were for, is it, Charlie? I can see the look of anger spread across the man's face as he slowly steps down from the podium and approaches my father. What exactly is it you're accusing me of, Mr. Verus? They are now inches apart, their eyes locked. My father raises his hand and pushes the leftover pieces of paper into Charlie's chest. Well, I think you know. He then brushes past him and looks into my eyes. Come on, son, we're going home. As I reach for my father's outstretched hand, a deafening noise rings out from behind him. There is a high-pitched buzz in my ears, but through it, I can still hear the muffled gasp from the crowd. A moment passes between my father and me. He stands in front of me with a look of surprised shock on his face. It seems to last an eternity, and then his eyes drift down to where a large red spot is forming on his shirt. He tries to take another step toward me but falters, loses his balance, and stumbles forward. My father is dead before he even lands in my arms. Above us stands the councilman, gun outstretched and plumes of smoke rising from the barrel. Another scream echoes through the frenzied crowd, and I recognize the sound of my mother's voice. Chaos reigns now, and no one stops her as she charges through and attacks him. She hits him with something heavy, shaking him from his frozen stupor and knocking aside the pistol in his hand. He defends himself for a moment as the other councilmen flee from around them. I gently lay my father's body on the ground while his eyes stare up at a cloudless sky. As I feel his still warm flesh for the last time, a kind of clarity washes over me, and I suddenly know what I must do. The scuffle nearby has drawn close when I notice a metallic glint on the dirt beside my father. As Charlie raises his fist to strike, I cock the hammer back on his sidearm. Standing off to his side, he catches me out of the corner of his eye, and he stops. His face is a tepid mixture of emotions, 
all swirling around at once. My voice strangely calm, I say, let her go and step back. He almost looks like he won't comply, the hate boiling over into insanity, but he does as I say. His hands above his head, he steps backward, now only feet from the border of the mist. My mother looks at me, and then her gaze drifts behind me to the body of my father. Sebastian, is he? I look at her with a gentle smile and say, I love you, mom. Please go see to dad. She nods with a look of exhausted acceptance, as if she already knows what comes next. I see Charlie take a few steps toward me as he starts to speak again. How do you expect this to play out, son? Are you really going to kill a councilman? I don't think that would do well for your family's name at all, do you? Oh, I'm sorry about your father, but to interfere with a ceremony is a crime. You know that? Hell, everyone knows that. He keeps talking while he walks toward me, a little closer with every step, until I raise the gun again. He stops, hesitates, and looks into my eyes. I slowly close the gap between us, never breaking from his gaze. When the gun is close enough to press against his head, I pull my hand back and bash the butt of the gun into his face. He crumples like a rag doll, blood pouring from his busted nose and missing teeth. He bellows and screams like a child, and I wait. He continues hollering and cursing me. His bloodshot eyes valiantly stare at me while he speaks. You worthless piece of fucking garbage. You're a plague, and your whole family needs to go. I'll make sure of it. I'll drag every goddamn relative you have here, and I'll shove that fog down their fucking throats. I let him rant for a moment before I signal for him to stand with the top of the pistol. He does so slowly while holding his nose with one hand. He continues cursing me while I walk him backward toward the threshold. He suddenly has a moment of clarity when he sees it and stops, turning to me with his eyes wide. Now it is my turn to speak. You worked so hard to get me here, Councilman, because you wanted me gone. Well, now you'll get your wish. Let's go, Charlie. His eyes grow wide as he looks deep into that white unknown before turning back to me. He grabs at my robe and pleads with me. Hold on now, Sebastian, the rules. Only one can go, and it, it, it can't be both of us. The keepers will be angry. Please, please don't do this. Just, just follow tradition, except that you've been chosen. I look down into his pitiable expression and kick him off me before aiming the gun at him again. Ignorance has become your truth, Councilman, but it will not become mine. When he shakes his head and refuses to move, I fire a round into the dirt beside him. Tears now stream down his face as he gets to his feet. I walk up behind him and place the gun into his back as I speak again. Move, Councilman. As we cross the threshold, I briefly turn back. I can see my mother holding my father's body as tears stream down her face. She looks up for a moment and our eyes meet. A lifetime worth of words could not compare to the unspoken bond we share in that instant. Then she is gone, and it is only the two of us in that eternal white void. There are no sounds or noises here, with the sole exception being the quiet sobs from my passenger. We travel in silence as I try to navigate. Even though he is barely two feet in front of me, I can hardly see him. I can't even see the ground beneath me, and there are no obstacles in the mist. It truly feels as if we have ascended into a different world entirely. Nothing exists here. There are no birds or animals, 
trees, or shrubs. There is only a vacuum, an eternal gray nothing through which we traverse. When his sobs eventually subside into shallow breathing, the absence of sound becomes almost painful. My mind wanders as we head deeper, thinking about my mother's fate. Were my actions cruel in leaving her alone with my father? Would it have been worse had I stayed? The community is in tatters now, and nothing is certain anymore. I cannot know what lies ahead, but the farther we go, I find myself regretting what I've left behind. Suddenly, he stops in front of me, turning around to face me and speak. We've been walking for ages, Sebastian. Neither of us have blindfolds and only you wear the robes. This just, this doesn't seem right. I mean, you must feel it too. I believe the keepers are testing us. Do they, they want us to turn back? To, to do this the right way. I flick the end of the gun and motion for him to continue, but he keeps talking. This is madness. I won't go against the wishes of the keepers and I refuse, dammit. You're going to get us both killed for this blasphemy. I sigh before reluctantly responding. Charlie, you have two choices now. You can keep walking, or you can be shot. Either one is fine with me, but decide quickly and stop whining. He looks at me for a moment with pleading eyes, and then stares at the ground and quietly responds. I will not be a party to your insanity. I will make this right. I'll drag you back with my bare hands if I have to. Before I can even comprehend his meaning, he's gripped the barrel of the gun and begun struggling to take it from me. He starts to pull me to the ground when I quickly slug him in the face with my left hand. I feel the crunch as the remains of his broken nose flatten against his face, releasing a fountain of blood that runs down his mouth. He screams in agony, but does not loosen his grip. We struggle on the soft ground beneath the mist as he attempts to kick me and bite my hand. We roll around on the floor, fighting like rabid dogs, until we are both utterly exhausted. Finally, in a last, desperate act, he attempts to shove his finger into my eye as he bites the hand holding the gun. The pain is excruciating, but I do not focus on it. Instead, I use the last of my strength to grab the broken fragments of his nose, and I pull. I hear a tearing sound that ends with a noise like crunching celery and I feel the cartilage explode as I pull it from his face. He is above me, and as the blood erupts, I am drenched in it. An inhuman wail of suffering comes next, and he involuntarily releases me as he grabs his face. He flops around for a few moments while screaming, before getting to his feet and blindly stumbling forward. As I follow behind him, nursing my swollen eye, I realize that any sense of direction I may have had was lost during our melee. I have no idea whether we are headed forward, backward, or sideways. We are now irrevocably lost in this abyss. With no other options left, I simply follow behind as he stumbles on, howling and screaming. I stay far enough back that he does not disappear, but I give him the space to flail at the nothingness. Within minutes, I see him fall to his knees and look up. Blood clogging his throat, his wretched scream is hoarse and filled with a choking sorrow. When he finishes, coughing and spluttering the last of his wails, he falls forward. Though I expect a sound from when he hits the earth, there is nothing. As his body collapses into the mist in front of him, it completely disappears from my field of vision. Confused, I cautiously walk toward the spot he had fallen. As I near, the fog begins to thin a little. When I finally reach it, 
the mist has cleared almost completely, and his disappearance suddenly makes sense. I stand at the precipice of a cliff, and as I peer over the edge, I bear witness to the truth. Thousands of feet below me, I see a wriggling mass of black flesh, split open and shining with millions of marble-colored teeth. The mass stretches on as far as the eye can see, a single entity with billions of serpent-like tentacles crawling over each other, gnashing their fangs. I stare at death, the destroyer of worlds, or what could be conceived of such a thing. From below, countless tiny little black eyes peer back at me from the sides of an endless, writhing mouth. For a moment I stand there, Charlie's sticky wet blood stinging my eyes, and just stare. But in the distance, I notice something. Something that brings me to my knees and makes me start to laugh. I keep laughing for a long time until it hurts. When I can no longer even smile, I pull out the cylinder to Charlie's revolver and empty every round except one. I push it back into place and spin the chamber. Then with a delirious grin, I aim it at the behemoth beneath me and pull the trigger. An empty click. My grin widens and I aim the barrel at myself, whispering quietly, I guess we'll keep going until one of us flinches. Standing at the edge, I stare into the distance, and as I start to gently squeeze the trigger, my grandfather's voice rises from the depths of my subconscious. Echoing in my head as I look out at the horizon, I hear him say, Walls are built to keep your livestock safe from things that won't end but they're also built to stop your food from getting out. Deep into the distance, as far as I can see, are countless other small portions of land, and around each of them swirls an empty, gray fog. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Beyond the Pale, as written by Josh Morelli and performed by Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's voice talent, Jonathan West. To find more of author Josh Morelli, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Morelli, spelled M-O-R-E-L-L-I and you'll be redirected to his author profile on creepypastastories.com. 
Jonathan West is a voice, stage, and screen actor, writer, and host, as well as the winner of Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's Evil Idol 2017 voice acting competition. You can find more of his work right here on the Chilling Tales for Dark Knights podcast. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by Trevor Brindley and performed by Eric Peabody. In it, will be introduced to a man who purchases a portrait of a monster, only to find that he's unwittingly brought the monster to life by giving it his attention. Now, without further ado, I present to you the self-portrait of Rancorous Rook. It hasn't even been a day since I first laid eyes upon it. I was dropping my girlfriend off for her last in-person yoga class before everything went back on lockdown for the winter, when a portrait hanging in the display window of a shop across the street unexpectedly caught my attention. It was an 18 by 24 inch expressionist painting of a black humanoid creature with poorly defined edges and features like it was bleeding into the shadows around it. It was tall gaunt and hunched, dressed in a tattered hood and mantle that vaguely resembled a set of wings. It lacked all facial features save for a pair of misty white eyes, the only part of its body that wasn't black. It held a lumpy sack in one hand, and in the other it plucked up a child between two of its long, Dr. Seuss-esque fingers. The child was bruised and bloodied, and undeniably terrified for its life, but no motive could be inferred from the stance of its tormentor. The whole scene was reminiscent of Saturn devouring his children, only with Saturn reimagined as some sort of Lovecraftian boogeyman. My interest sufficiently piqued, I decided to go inside for a closer look. The shop in question was Orville's old-fashioned oddity outlet, and was mildly infamous for selling strange items of questionable authenticity. Ever since I first started taking my girlfriend to the neighboring Eve's Eden of Esoterica, I often wondered how old Orville managed to stay in business. His oddity shop rarely seemed busy, and from what I could tell, most people agreed that his merchandise was overpriced hokum. It could have just been that Orville was living off an inheritance or something and was operating his business at a loss for the hell of it, or that the runoff from Eves was enough to keep him afloat. But a quick glance at the local paranormal forum, HeroicHallows.net, produced photographs of some of our town's wealthiest residents visiting the shop along with a handful of other mysterious figures who nobody recognized. Patrons ranging from cloaked cultists to colorful clown girls had been seen making after-hours visits to Orville's. So maybe, just maybe, a few of Orville's high-end items were legit, and the occasional sale to his select clientele was all he needed to stay in business. It was a fun little thought as I stepped through the door, paying no heed to the large caveat emptor emblazoned upon it. VHS tapes? 
What am I supposed to do with VHS tapes? I heard a gruff voice ask. I turned towards it and saw an old man in a garish pastel suit with his feet up on his desk and a phone in his hand. With his other hand, he indicated he would be with me in one moment. Nobody has a VCR anymore, so what good would... You have a VCR to go with the tape collection? And what's it steal? Of course you can't set the clock. There's nothing paranormal about that. Listen, what are you trying to sell? The tapes or what's on the tapes? Because if it's what's on the tapes, then maybe you could... Uh-huh. Well, I'll never be able to move them as a general item if I have to convince people to buy an obsolete VCR to go with them. I might broker a deal with a specific buyer, but I'll need more information. Not now, though. I got a customer. I'll call you back. I said no. If you put a piece of scotch tape over the remove tab, you can tape over it again. If there's tape residue, they could have been taped over, but it could just be from an old label. How would I know? I... Yeah, you figure that out. I gotta go. Bye. He hung up the receiver on the cradle of a bronze and mahogany rotary phone before folding his fingers and giving me his full attention. Honestly, the things some of these jerks try to unload on me, he said with a roll of his eyes. Anywho, can I help you find anything, young man? Yeah, actually, I was wondering about that painting in the window. I replied, pointing to the display behind me. Oh, you mean the self-portrait of rancorous Ruck? The old man flashed me a devious smile before donning an iridescent tragedy mask with a surgical mask fixed to the inside. Self-portrait? I asked skeptically. Absolutely, he said, rising from his seat and leading me towards the painting. Cryptids and monsters are notoriously difficult to get decent photographs of, and that was a bit of a problem for old Rancor here. He can't exist in the real world unless he already exists in the mind of a... suitable host, let's say. He's sustained by thoughts about him, and uses his host's innate mental energy to manifest a physical form for himself. This presents a bit of a catch-22 since he needs people to know about him to exist, but existing is kind of a prerequisite for people to know about you. What's a damned thought form to do? If you're a thought-based murder monster with an artistic streak like Rancorous Ruck here, you leave a self-portrait behind as a calling card. That way, even after your host is pushing up daisies, another one is bound to come along sooner or later and end up getting you stuck in their head. He took the portrait down from the easel and allowed me to get a better look at it taking care not to look at it himself. The first thing I noticed was that the lumps of the sack were much more clearly hands or feet or faces pushing against it from the inside. The bottom of the sack was wet and dripping with dark fluid, presumably blood, and the background showed many small sets of footprints running rapidly in all directions. Finally, in the corner... I could make out the signature of the artist in the same stark white as the creature's eyes. Rancorous Ruck, Self-Portrait, September 1947. So, you're claiming that the creature in the portrait is the artist, and it leaves these paintings behind as a way to infect other victims? I asked incredulously. 
That's right. And anyone with a lick of sense or concern for their fellow human beings burns them, so they're very rare, Orville replied. I know what you're thinking. Why in the world would anyone pay $1,300 for a cursed painting? $1,300? Before taxes and various fees and surcharges, yes. The reason is that since your thoughts sustain old Rancor, you're able to exert some control over how he manifests. The more you study this portrait, the more of Rancorous you take into yourself and, if you're strong enough, the more of him you can bend to your will. Potentially very useful or life-saving if he decides to come after you, which he probably will since you've taken such an interest in his handiwork. <laughs> Good luck getting him out of your head now. Seriously though, your best bet is to buy the painting and study every square inch of it until your eyes are bloodshot, put in some eye drops, and keep studying. I was more than a little confused by Orville's sales pitch of buy this possessed painting in the hopes of inoculating yourself against the demon first. I didn't really believe him, but I did find the story mildly entertaining. As for the painting itself, I genuinely liked it. It was delightfully macabre, and I was curious about why the artist would have titled it a self-portrait. I could tell that it was an actual painting and not a print, so even though I would have liked some actual provenance on the piece, 1300 wasn't an outrageous asking price for a decent work by an unknown artist. As much as I hate myself for it, I ended up buying the damn thing which came to almost 1600 with all of Orville's taxes, fees, and surcharges. He wrapped it up very carefully, still taking the greatest of care not to look at it himself, and helped me Tetris it into the trunk of my car. I didn't want my girlfriend to see it, not because I was afraid of the curse, but because I was scared of her cursing me out. Fortunately, when she came out of Eve's, she put her bags in the back seat instead of the trunk. I didn't really plan for what I would have said if she had opened the trunk, but I got lucky. That was a fight we could save for another day. Once I had taken her home and gotten back to my apartment, for some reason, I took Orville's advice and carefully inspected the painting before hanging it up. It didn't make any sense, though, since there wasn't really anything to study. Rancorous Ruck was just a shadow person, and there didn't seem much more I could learn just by looking at him. If I squinted, I thought that maybe I could make out the outline of a belt, ragged sleeves, or the tattered hem of his hood, but that was it. I stared into the empty void of his face thinking that if there was any hidden detail, that was where I'd find it. But no matter how hard I looked, I couldn't see anything other than those two white eyes. Since my thorough examination of the piece failed to yield any hidden secrets, I felt comfortably reassured that Orville had been full of crap. I even googled Rancorous Ruck and got zero results which seemed a crushing blow to Orville's claim that there had ever been multiple paintings by an artist using that pseudonym. I was convinced the painting was a one-off by an unknown artist that had somehow found its way to Orville's shop, and he made up a story to go with it, as he did for all his wares. I did vaguely recall seeing something about a red ruck on the Harrowick Hallows forum, but I didn't overthink it. 
I figured both were just drawing inspiration from the same local legend. I tried taking a photo of the portrait with my phone to upload to the forum, and that's when things first started to get weird. When I looked at the portrait through my phone, Ruck was nothing but an amorphous black cloud. There was nothing humanoid about his form at all, and the white bits that had been his eyes were now clearly just breaks in the cloud. I fiddled around with the settings and even the lighting in my room, but nothing could make rancorous Ruck appear on the screen the way he did in the portrait. This got even more unsettling when I tried to take a photo or record a video. Each and every time, the file wouldn't save, no matter what I did. I tried saving it to the device, the SD card, the cloud. Nothing worked. At this point, I was starting to get a little freaked out, but there were still rational explanations to explore before accepting Orville's cockamamie story. Maybe the portrait wasn't from 1947, but was far more modern and embedded with some machine-readable code for digital rights management. But that wasn't really how something like that would work, was it? I would get a notification telling me I didn't have the rights to share the image. It wouldn't just inexplicably be unable to save files, and it certainly wouldn't automatically censor it the way it was doing. Could it have been for a joke or marketing scheme then? But that still would have required getting the software onto my phone somehow. Maybe my phone was infected with malware, and it was just a coincidence that the first thing I tried to take a photo of was this creepy painting. That was pretty much all I could think of, aside from the obvious theories about losing my marbles. Frustrated, I tossed my phone aside and leaned in to examine the portrait once again, to see if I could find anything that might explain the incongruity between what I was seeing and what the camera on my phone saw. I found myself staring into Ruck's eyes. The eyes that my phone said were nothing more than empty spaces in a shapeless black form. But they were too deliberately placed and shaped to be anything but eyes, and they had been painted a very distinct white to contrast with the darkness around them, making their presence undeniable. I could even make out the faint outline of pupils and irises, though I hadn't noticed them before. In fact, now that I was really looking at them, I could see that they even had corneas, each of which held the reflection of a vague, ghostly figure. It was astonishing how much detail had gone into eyes that would only be noticed up close. By then, I was really starting to wish that my girlfriend had discovered the painting. At least I'd have a rational excuse to take it back to Orville's. Not that he would have taken it back. He was very clear that the only thing about his shop that wasn't real was his return policy. I tried to convince myself that I was being silly. The whole reason I bought the painting was because it was creepy, and if I had spent as much money on my phone as I had on it, maybe it would be able to take a decent picture of it. Sighing in defeat, I resigned myself to living with the portrait for at least one night. If it were still a problem in the light of day, I'd try to pawn it off on some gallery or museum for a tax deduction. 
Sleep, unsurprisingly, eluded me that night. Have you heard of the Tetris effect? It's when you have residual imagery of something you are focused on, either in the dark or in your peripheral vision. Well, as I laid in the dark that night, I could see rancorous Ruck. At first, it was just his eyes floating in the darkness, his body as amorphous as it had been on my phone. But gradually, he started to take shape. His head, his hood, and his mantle, then his limbs, his torso, and finally his sack all slowly emerged as distinct from the surrounding darkness, and I could see him as clearly as if I was looking at his portrait. The child, however, did not appear, leaving Ruck with a free hand. He held up his long fingers to his face to examine them, and I thought nothing of it, dismissing it as more hypnagogic imagery. Then, he lowered his hands and looked towards me, and a smile made of nothing more than a bright white line broke out across his face. He set his sack on the ground and began noisily rummaging through it, and as I drifted off to sleep, I remember thinking that it was very odd that a residual image on my retina should be able to make any noise at all. It was still night when I awoke again, still dark, but I could immediately tell something was wrong. My bedroom door was open when I knew I had closed it, and the light was leaking in through the crack when I knew I had turned all the lights off. Panicking, I bolted out of bed and dashed into the living room, ready to confront any intruders with only my bare fists. My machismo vanished pretty quickly when I saw what was waiting for me in that room. In the sepia light of candles that I didn't own, I saw the hunched figure of rancorous Ruck working ardently at another self-portrait. His back was turned to me, and thus the painting was facing my direction. He had drawn himself emerging out of an inky black patch of mold on an old brick wall, wrapping his hand around the mouth of his victim while brandishing a knife in the other. Even though his victim's face was mostly covered by his hand, there wasn't the slightest doubt in my mind that it was supposed to be me. He turned around to face me then his face nothing more than two white dots and a smile against an impenetrable black void. He held up his brush, heavy with paint that he carelessly let drip to my floor, and moved slightly to the side so that I could get a better view of his artwork. I don't think I got your eyes quite right, boy, he mocked in a raspy voice. Hope you can live with that. I didn't respond. Hell, I barely heard him, my heart was pounding so hard. My veins flooded with adrenaline, but I couldn't will my limbs to move. I was practically catatonic, 
sweating and shivering as I just stared wide-eyed at the monster painting in my living room. Ruck just snickered in contempt, turning his attention back to his painting, adding a few finishing touches. Only then, when his back was turned and I thought I actually had a chance, did I run. I ran to my apartment door and threw it open, only to see old Rancor casually standing in the doorframe, blocking my path. Hello, he smirked, with an exaggerated wave of his long, mangy fingers. Yes, Dr. Seuss-esque is what you called them if I'm not mistaken. A colorful description, I must admit, even if it's not exactly what I was going for. I slammed the door shut, but it just went right through him, and he had somehow moved up slightly so that I had just shut him into the apartment with me. I had two choices then, to fight him head on or try to reach the fire escape. For absolutely nothing remotely resembling a rational motive, I tried to throttle him and tackle him to the ground. Before I could even make contact, though, he slipped behind me with ethereal ease and leapt upon my back, putting me into a chokehold and muffling my screams with his hand. I frantically tried to buck him off, slamming up against the wall and rolling upon the floor, but he clung to me with a dauntless and uncanny tenacity. It didn't take long for me to exhaust my oxygen supply like that, and I quickly lost consciousness. I wasn't dead, though. Not yet. I awoke at my desk, tied to my chair, with my laptop booted up and placed in front of me. It was still night, and I probably wasn't out for more than a few minutes. I began frantically looking around for my attacker, and, sure enough, he was standing over me with his arms crossed, waiting patiently for me to wake up. What the fuck are you? I demanded, struggling against my bindings whilst on the verge of hyperventilation. Exactly what Orville told you, or at least close enough that it's not worth going over again, he replied. He bent over and picked up his soggy dripping sack, and I could see slowly writhing faces, hands, and other body parts pushing against it from the inside, moaning in dull anguish as they thrashed within their burlap prison. See this? In here are all the minds of my old victims, and they're what keeps me going when the world forgets about me. You're going in here, too, but not just yet. I have a small favor to ask of you first. Fuck you, I cursed, vehemently spitting at him. He backhanded me so hard my chair toppled over. I was too out of it for a second to notice him putting me back up, but apparently he did, because I was looking at my computer again when I came back to my senses. Orville was right, you know. Your thoughts sustain me, 
So all you had to do to beat me was not think of me as a monster. He taunted me, his smile twisting into a jagged white scrawl of chalk as he squeezed my cheeks with his prickly, slimy fingers. A shame that's easier said than done. You have managed to make one non-trivial contribution to my being, though. Aside from the Seuss fingers, you couldn't find a single search result when you googled me, and in this day and age, one needs an online presence if one hopes to get anywhere. So here's the deal. I'm going to paint, and you're going to write. And if you come up with something postable by the time I've finished my painting, you'll get the privilege of going into my sack in one piece. But if you refuse... He held his sack up to my face and pulled it open. Inside was an endless abyss of severed limbs, flayed skins, decapitated heads, and scalped faces, all of them still animate and aware. Worst of all, most of them looked like they had come from children. He snapped the bag shut again, and I tried to muster up the courage to tell him to fuck off again, but I couldn't. And so, I'm writing this. Rancorous Ruck's debut post to the interwebs, exposing him to a bigger audience than his paintings ever could. I don't know if something written by someone else will infect people the same way as his paintings do, but I really hope it doesn't. But if this post does infect people, please know that I am truly sorry. The bastard's in my head now. I'm not strong enough to resist him. Once I post this, I'm going in the sack. And maybe you think that's what I deserve for giving in to Ranker's demands. But if you pity me at all, and you ever happen to be in Sombermori, then please, please, do me one favor. Burn Orville's shop to the ground. I hope you enjoyed the self-portrait of Rancorous Rock, as written by Trevor Brindley and voiced by Evil Idol finalist Eric Peabody. If you enjoyed Mr. Peabody's performance, you can hear more of him on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, where he holds the second-place championship title for 2019's Evil Idol competition. You'll also find more of his work on his website at www.vikingguitar.com. That's V-I-K-I-N-G-G-U-I-T-A-R. Just so you know. To find more of author Trevor Brindley, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Brindley, spelled B-R-I-N-D-L-E-Y, 
and you'll be redirected to his author profile on creepypastastories.com as well as his Amazon page. By clicking his Amazon link on that profile, a small portion of your purchase goes to us here at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where we're proud Amazon affiliates to help make this show possible. And if you do decide to check out Trevor's work on Amazon, you won't want to miss his fantastic novel, Mem Cries. Mem Cries tells the story of the extraordinary midlife crisis experienced by an average guy, just like you and me. He awakes one day to find himself divorced from his wife, estranged from his new girlfriend, prematurely removed from his career and totally confused as to what to do next. Three years later, he enjoyed an adventure holiday in the southern hemisphere that eventually took him to Thailand, wherein, and please forgive me my pronunciation, I did try to look it up, Ao Nang Grabi, he met two beguiling characters called Mem and Ice. On December 26, 2004, whilst enjoying family festivities at home in England, he witnessed the disturbing television reports of the devastating tsunami that struck the region he had such fond memories of. Fate and destiny play their parts in the tale of his quest to track down Mem and Ice, and a search to find an alternative and more meaningful form of existence. So don't delay. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Brindley. Pick up your copy of Mem Cries and let him know that Jason sent you. It would mean a lot to us. Speaking of Jason, if you haven't had your horror fill for the evening, or morning, or afternoon, it makes no difference. It's always time for horror. You can check out my podcast, Horror Hill. Now in its fourth season, available on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. So don't be afraid to dabble, because Horror Hill is finger-looking good. Mm. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. Oh, and do follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, if you haven't already. And, of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. Oh, and consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. Did you hear that, YouTube commenters? You can get this ad-free. It's every bit as good as it sounds. Let's wrap this puppy up. I'm getting hungry. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it has been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams.
you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.